Hello, this is Blake Bagger here, Parish Catechist at St. Peter. Throughout this audio, you'll hear break-ins from me that summarize questions or when a reader was not audible because of our microphones. We hope you enjoy this presentation from Chad Steiner on the great story, Creation and Corruption. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to come and be among us with your presence in a special way this evening. We thank you for this group that you have gathered. We don't know what all your plans are for us, but we know that it's right to trust you because you created this whole place, this whole world in which we live, and we want to follow you, and that's why we're here. So we ask you to show us yourself. And somehow in the conversation this evening, Lord, would you come among us and make yourself known? Help me to be clear. Give all of us the confidence to, to ask questions if things aren't clear. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of your, uh, of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. thought it might be helpful to tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, I, I, I forgot to answer the spice question last week, so, and I still don't know how I would. But I love cilantro, um, and my dad and I, who's also a sometimes catechist here, and you'll see him uh, maybe next semester a little bit more. Um, he hates cilantro. He believes it tastes like soap. And so I guess it's not a soap. It's uh, a soap. It's not a soap. It's not a spice. It's an herb. But I think that was part of the... Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. So I'm a cilantro guy. I have a big family. We have eight kids. Uh, in Catholic circles, that's not always big. We have friends who have 12, 13 kids. I think the Ariases have 13. Do you know the Ariases? He teaches at Our Lady Guadalupe. Uh, Bover Family Eye Care, I think, if anybody's familiar with them. They have 12. Um, you might find out about them. Anyway, um, yeah, we, have, we had five girls, then two boys, and then a, a, a little caboose to bring up the rear. Uh, we have a lot of pets, too. I was trying to remember all the names of them. Uh, we had two dogs, Shep and Kalmar, but sadly Shep died on my daughter's birthday uh, two years ago. We had Chandler and Phoebe, who were two rabbits of a foursome, or fivesome, I can't remember. I, don't, I never watched Friends, but apparently. And then Chandler died. <laughs> so now we just have Phoebe. <laughs> She's lonely. We have Lillian Rose. Okay, pop quiz. Anybody know where that comes from? No. Nice. Harry Potter. The a derivative, yeah. So we're big Harry Potter fans. Um, we have a fish named Phil, which is short for filet. No joke. <laughs> and we have another fish named Princess Peach for some reason. And then we had a crab, a hermit crab, named Herbert the Sherbert August Steiner III. And my daughter used to bring him to school with her friend here at St. Peter. Uh, unbeknownst to the principal or the teachers. And uh, it was kind of a dare thing, I think. And uh, yeah, he's, he's gone now too. He comes from the East Coast. So we are, uh, we're just shy of an ark, really. Anybody know your Bible stories? Lots of pets, no ark. I, uh, I make my living not doing this, although I joked with John on a run this morning that this is all I do. 
Um, I would love to do this full time, but Blake's better at it than I am. So I do it part time and I teach Bible studies, Bible classes and theology at a real small school here in town called the Emmaus Institute for Biblical Studies. We do evening courses. Uh, there's one going on right now at the Institute called Heaven Help the Home. It's a kind of a biblical study on marriage and the family. So, and those are all available online if you're interested. Um, I actually didn't come here to pitch that, so I'll stop with that. But that's what I do for my day job. And so that gets me into all kinds of good uh, investigative studies on different biblical passages and how these have been understood throughout the centuries. Uh, the church, of course. And that's really kind of how I found myself back in 2010 and 11 uh, being drawn into the church. So I'm a convert. Um, if you're not Catholic, you're among a friend. <laughs> anyway, um, I can relate. And there were a lot of things that were bothersome to me about the Catholic church, but the more that I studied and studied, especially the scriptures and my work, uh, the more it seemed that I was being drawn by God into this church. Um, I teach with my father, whom I, I mentioned earlier, but he's not here tonight, although I think he'll, he'll show up next quarter a bit. But he's also a convert. He was uh, 40 or 50 years a Protestant and then a pastor even in a Protestant church. And he wound up in the Catholic church. Uh, sometimes my profession as, a, as an academic means that I say things that nobody understands <laughs> except for me. <laughs> they sound good when they come out of my mouth. And then I get blank stares and I think, oh, you did it again. You used one of them words or you put it a certain way that nobody understood it. So will you please just be my friend and tell me when I do that? <laughs> and raise your hand and say, nope, <laughs> zap, I need you to restate that because that didn't compute for me. Uh, so if it's not working for you, just flag me down and I'll redo it. Um, I get that a lot over the years. So uh, also, yeah, yeah. So an invitation to you to be welcome. One, because I was all, not always a Catholic, so I get uh, not being Catholic. And two, um, yeah, I say things weirdly sometimes. So I just, I want to be very approachable. So just make sure that you understand that. So those are a few more or less important features about me. I thought it might be good for this first big section of our units as we go through this journey together called The Great Story, Part 1, to begin with a, a few important features of our faith. So these are some things that we Catholics really hold dear, and many non-Catholics also hold them dear, but there might be points of difference too. So you should be thinking, oh, that's different from what I think about uh, as a non-Catholic. Um, and if you want, you can write those down and come at me later with those. But let's, let's talk about a few of them. This is in your notes, letter or number zero, point one. The Trinity. Most people have an idea about what the Trinity is. It's a big deal to Catholics. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Some Catholics will hold their fingers like this. Why? Because you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit right there. It's kind of an Eastern Orthodox tradition. We'll come to them later. But, um, but some Catholics do it too. Father, do you ever? No? Okay. Just us weirdos. Uh, academic weirdos. Yeah. I, I started doing that and I've Never stopped, I guess. But we believe that there is only one God who subsists. That means who exists, but relationally. 
in three persons, which is a total paradox. It's a total contradiction, right? One God in three persons, which are nonetheless one substance. And we use a really technical word, consubstantial. It's in your notes. If you've ever said the creed before, if you've heard it, the Nicene Creed, which we say at Mass all the time, I believe in one Father, uh, well, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then we get to Jesus Christ, we say um, that word consubstantial with the Father. We ascribe to Jesus that he is a different person from the Father, but one substance, not two substances. If you had two substances, you'd have more than one God, wouldn't you? So, uh, and how that works is a mystery. It's one of the two great mysteries of the faith. How does the Trinity work? And also, how did God become man? So the incarnation, that's the second mystery. So two great mysteries of the Catholic faith, the Trinity and the incarnation. And we do our darndest to try and get our heads around it, but it's like a lot of things. It's a challenge. So if you're muddled and confused, don't worry. You're not alone. Uh, let's break down, though, the Trinity a bit. So letter A in your notes. We call the first person of the Trinity Father because Jesus taught us to call him this. It's a wonderful gift. And he does it in Matthew 6, where he gives us the Lord's Prayer, most of us non-Catholics would call it, or the Our Father, as we Catholics would say. He says, Jesus says, when you pray, this is a great line, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentiles is like code for pagans. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, and he begins, our Father. So he invites us to be his brothers and sisters, siblings together with the same Father. It's a beautiful moment in Scripture. You don't have to speak fancy <laughs> when you pray. You don't have to say a lot of words. Just say it like this, our Father. And as soon as you say it, you're adopted. <laughs> You're being called and grasped by the Father as someone the Father recognizes. It's a beautiful moment. So that's why we call God, the invisible God, Father. We call the second person of the Trinity, Son, whom we know as Jesus, or we could say Jesus of Nazareth, the, the physical man who was born to Mary, right? In relation to the Father. We, we know Jesus in relation to the Father. So if he's the Father, then Jesus is the Son. Jesus, though, is also called the Word of God. And if you look in your Bibles, in the fourth gospel, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first verse, first chapter, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was, that was made. So John is taking Jesus, this one that everybody's kind of getting to know, <laughs> and he's saying, hey, this guy, the big deal guy, he was actually in existence way before he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. He was in the beginning with God. And he was the one through whom God made everything. So he's been at this a long time. John also records Jesus identifying himself as the beginning and the end in Revelation. I've got it for you in your notes, chapter 22, 30. So this is toward the end of the Bible. I'm pointing the wrong way. I always do this. Uh, for you guys, Genesis is here, right? First book of the Bible, 
all the way to the end. Revelation over here. Got to remember. Left or right? Yeah, left, right for you. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek for, well, you can hear the alphabet there. Uh, it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. In fact, the second letter is Beta. Alpha, Beta. Or in Hebrew, Aleph, Bet. Sound similar? Alphabet. Get it? Did you know that? Fun fact, right? Alphabet. Anyway, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is Jesus himself talking. He also talks about himself as a light. In uh, the next verse there, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And that makes sense, given what John, that, that he talks about himself as a light. And John's the one who wrote Revelation, we hold, we believe. And so, so he wrote the Gospel of John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. So these words that he's recording Jesus is saying in Revelation 22.16, where Jesus talks about himself as the bright morning star, makes sense because John says about Jesus back in the Gospel, chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, in him, that is, the word, that is, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And then several chapters later, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You get the idea that lightness and darkness here have a bigger meanings than just what happened when we walked into the room tonight and flipped on the light, right? Or when the sun rises tomorrow, uh, even though it's setting tonight. Like we have darkness now, but tomorrow there will be light. Like there's more going on here, right? What Jesus is talking about with lightness and darkness. You won't walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. We'll come back to that. I'm dropping all these carrots. I hope you're hanging on. All right. <laughs> I know it's late, but if you haven't, is there coffee? There's not coffee. Well, next week there will be coffee. To the third person of the Trinity, whom we call Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who, and the creed we say, who proceeds from the Father and the Son as love and life and giver of life. Those last, that last phrase is mine. Uh, we don't say that as love and life and giver of life, but that's how our church the in the catechism, which is kind of the, the official set of statements, um, which is actually searchable online. And if you need that link, you can we'll get it to you later. Um, but the, the sort of packages it for us. He's the, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son as love and life and giver of life. So I said a, a moment ago, we'll come back to this whole light theme in a bit. Um, but let me call your minds back to last week when we went on that virtual tour together, right? You'll have noticed when we were looking at those slides that, this is 0.2 in your notes, that the main worship ceremony in the Catholic Church, which everybody knows as the Mass, yep, the Mass, takes place in a space that's highly structured. There's order, there's form. And that order and form of this building, which is being re refurbed now, is very significant. The space is also filled with features. We've got statues, 
we've got stained glass with detailed imagery. We have candles. We have an altar, a baptismal font. There's a tabernacle behind the altar, which you won't have seen, but that's a very special part of our sanctuary features where that's where we believe that the consecrated bread and wine, which is no longer now bread and wine, but has been transformed into some other substance, is kept as a treasure. There's that. Uh, we have garden-like plant life. These are all significant in the way that they give glory to God and promote what is good through what is seen and experienced. Because that's how we work, we humans. We like to see stuff. We like to hear it. We want to touch it. We want to taste it. Hear it. I said say here already. Smell it. Everything. We, we exist in our five senses and our thoughts about things that we uh, perceive in our senses. So it's important for us to experience our faith that way. Physically, tangibly, right? But why do I begin this way? That's the question. Isn't my assignment to introduce the great story, part one? Well, yes, it is. Uh, but I think it'll become clear why I start this way as we move into creation, the introduction to God's blessing plan. So if you're holding some of these thoughts I've just introduced in your head, as we move through this next part, you'll start making connections. All right? Ready to go? The story of our Christian faith, your faith, my faith, begins not when we decide to follow Jesus of Nazareth. It's not meant to be a shock and awe statement, but it might, I don't know, be surprising. That's not when the story of our faith begins. It's not when we're born nor even when the church is born, as we read about in the New Testament. That's not when the story of Christian faith begins. Not when we're born, not when we decide, not when the church is born. The story of our faith actually begins where the Bible does, in the beginning of the great story, the scriptural revelation of God. It's in here. Of God and of God's universal blessing plan that extends from God's first act of creating through the time that we're in right now, in 2023, all the way forward to God's renewal of his creation. So God made something, then it broke, and he says, I'm going to save it. And we're in the middle of that salvation project somewhere, and he's going to finish saving it someday. That's God's story. That's the story of our Christian faith. And it's really important for you to understand your story as part of the larger story of God's. Because it starts with God. It doesn't start with you or me or us or you know, the Catholic Church. It starts with God. In a real sense, the next paragraph, in a real sense, the story of our faith begins not as our story, but as God's great three-act play. And I don't mean to shortchange it by calling it a play. I'm just appealing to like the idea of drama here. If you've ever been to a Shakespearean play or a, um, yeah, a production, I love calling it the drama of the divine. Partly because I like alliteration, you know, where you start this, the words with the same letter. That's the first book of Genesis. 
That's what Genesis introduces in a very artful way in its account of God's creation in the first two chapters. Then it moves on to show how the creation became corrupted by sin and rebellion. That's the next set of chapters from 3 to 11. And of how God responded to this situation by starting a covenant program that unfolds his rescue and registration. registration, rescue and restoration mission. Genesis 12, so the the 12th chapter all the way through the end of the Old Testament and even the New Testament and even the end of that to Revelation. That's the rest of the story is God's multi-splendored restoration mission. And it does so in ways that connect with our faith very deeply and that continue to give shape to our faith, this whole beginning thing. So, like when God builds a world, we're trying to build a church right now, or revamp one, you know, right? But you'll see some connections, I hope, if I explain it well. So, let's take it in pieces, shall we? Starting with the Trinity, which, I, which is where I started this evening, after the introduction. In Genesis 1, we read these words. They sound like John, really. In the beginning, and then it moves, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God, one of the first things we find out about God is that he talks. (laughs) He speaks. He says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw. He evaluated the light, that it was good that it wasn't bad, or that good was absent from it. No, it was good. And God separated that good light from that thing that he didn't call good, darkness. I want to talk briefly about that phrase in the the very first word in your Bibles. In can also be... Anybody know, by the way, what, uh, what language, we, we, we read in English, right? All of us. But what language was Genesis originally written in? It wasn't Latin. Good guess. They're getting closer. Hebrew. Who said? You said Hebrew? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well done. Yeah, it was Hebrew. Yeah, very ancient language. And in Hebrew, often words are combined. Like you can say a whole, whole phrase or sometimes a whole sentence in one word. That's the way it is with our first word. You want to hear the first three words, actually. In Hebrew, bereshit. You have to be careful how you say that <laughs> and how you pronounce that third vowel, right? Yeah. I taught the we, we, I, on the side here. One of my jobs is to go to the seminary in Seward and, um, and offer classes for the what are called the propedeutic students. Uh, these are the guys right out of high school, most of them, who think that they've heard the call of God to become priests of the Catholic Church, uh, but they're still discerning. They're not sure. And so they enter this preparatory, is what that word means, propedeutic, preparatory year. And one of the things that the seminary wants us to do is the Emmaus Institute is to teach them Bible, because they don't know much Bible. So we need to orientate them. And so I talked about this word, and I spelled it out on the board. And it's, as you can guess, the when you put it in English, the last four letters are S-H-I-T. Uh, of course, we pronounce it sheet, but a sheet. 
You have to be careful how you say Bereshit, right? It's not bear. That's what you find in the woods. Yeah, we're talking about something different. In the beginning. And the in part is the b part. But that preposition in can also be with in Hebrew or by. In other words, the first word of the whole Bible could be with the beginning or by way of the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then you start, you start scratching your head. Wait a minute. John was saying that it was through Christ that everything was made. That sounds a lot like saying by way of, and, and also Christ is the beginning and the end, he calls himself, right? So is the first word of the whole Bible saying by way of the beginning? That is by way of Jesus. God the Father created everything so that Jesus is being uh, displayed somehow in creation. Scratch on that for a bit. Letter B in your notes. In relation to Genesis 1, if you read, anybody got your Bible open? If you, if you have a Bible and you turn to Genesis 1, so right at the very beginning, can I ask, if, you, if you're there, can you read verses 14 and, uh, yeah, 14 and 15? Then God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate day from the night. Let them mark the fixed times, the days and the years, and serve as luminaries in the dome of the sky to shed light upon the earth. And so it happened. Okay. So now, if you're reading carefully, you're a little confused because back in verse 3 of the same chapter, just up the page a bit, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. This is verse 4. And God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light days, even given names to this. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And if you've got your Bible open, look down in verse 8. By virtue of the light, we have evening and morning the second day, don't we? And then down in the end of verse 13, there was evening and there was morning the third day. So somehow, there was already something of light present in the cosmos, something luminescent that illuminated everything, right? Such that we could have evening and morning. But the lights that light the place up, that turn on the switch for, you know, sun, moon, stars, and all that, aren't created until the fourth day. What's the story here? Anybody got a guess? We're being shown two different ways of thinking about light. So what's going on in verse 3? I mean, if God the Father is the one who's in the beginning creating everything, and what's he talking about or to in verse 3? Could it be? Rhetorical question. I don't like those any more than you probably do, but is God the Father addressing God the Son, who is, according to John, the light of the world, and saying, come forward and illuminate this whole place and let's get busy making stuff. Yeah, so he's the light of the world. And, I mean, just to put the nail in it, what happens 
during the Passion. At the moment that Christ himself, the man on the tree, breathes his last and expires, there's an earthquake and the light that has lit the world from the beginning to now, quite apart from the sun, the moon, and stars, that has given light and life to the world, is extinguished on his own accord. I mean, he does it. He gives his life. And it goes out. And then the sun rises Easter morning. And we're not just talking about S-U-N, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful storied gapping, like you get this theme of light throughout the scriptures. I'm doing the wrong way again. Genesis, this way, uh, up to Matthew and John. Yeah. Uh, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, so it's, it's very conspicuously absent that, that in the, verse, the first few verses there, God the Father doesn't make the light in the way he makes all the other stuff. Right? He says, let there be. And he separates the light from the darkness. What do you reckon is going on there? You know about the war that happens from time memoriam where Lucifer takes a third of the angels and rebels against God and is banished to the realm of hell, right? So this whole idea of separating the light from the darkness that we get in the first couple verses is a kind of summary, very terse, very short summary of something that happened long before creation even started. There's a whole story before the story. <laughs> and that really kind of sets up our part in the story. But there's this tension between good and evil, between light and dark. And it kind of exists even in, yeah, um, even today. And we're in the middle of it. So I'll let that soak to letter C and 1.1 letter C. Uh, I think the word God in English is interesting. It's actually more interesting in Hebrew. Um, it's Elohim in Hebrew. Some of you have maybe heard that word before, which is a plural grammatically plural form. God, the word God in Hebrew is plural. And it doesn't make any sense if you read it in verse 1.1. One, one. In the beginning, God created. But then look at, if you have your Bibles open, down at verse 26. You want to read, uh, read verse 26 for us again? Sorry to keep putting you on the spot. But... Then God said, let us make... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let who? Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. Yeah, keep going. Go ahead and read 27, and let's everybody listen to the pronouns. Him, her, them, that kind of, that kind of word. So God created man in his own image. Image of God, he created him. Male and female. So there's this kind of back and forth here. Let us, God, the singular God says, let us make man in our image, as if there's more than one of us. So then, verse 27, then God created man, which is singular, in his, that's singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Of course, God is plural in Hebrew, right? In the image of God, he created, plural, singular. Male and female, he created them. This is a beautiful thing about male and female and children, is that somehow, beautifully, not one of us is able to image God perfectly on our own, but in communion, in community, 
we put forward before the world the likeness of God. So whether a priest with his children, the people in his parish, his bride, we could say, or uh, for those of us in the married life, you know, husband, wife, and ch- uh, children, I mean, in this plurality, somehow we, we present to the world the likeness of God. And that's our mission. And that's a gift. It's such a gift. The Spirit of God, uh, verse 2. So we've got God, the Father, verse 1. We've got that weird preposition, right? By way of the beginning, which is how Jesus describes himself. So we've got kind of this cryptic reference, maybe to the second person of the Trinity in verse 1. And then verse 2 the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was heaven. So we have the Trinity in the first two verses of Scripture, of the Old Testament. We don't just get to meet Jesus in Matthew, in the Gospels, at Christmas. <laughs> we get to meet him at the very beginning. He's involved, and so is the Holy Spirit. It's always a Trinity. So that's why Trinity is a big deal to us Catholics. The church is, this isn't in your notes, I'll just summarize real quick here, before we get to 1.2. The church's understanding of the Holy Trinity is obviously something that doesn't begin in the New Testament, but far earlier. And specifically, its understanding of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, which is how we say it in the Creed, is exactly presented in the very first two verses of the whole Bible. The first and second persons are mentioned first as co-agents of creation. They're the ones doing the making, right? The Spirit is mentioned following this as the at-the-ready one for the life-giving creative acts of love to follow. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. You know, in a, if it was a movie, it'd be like the strings. We're waiting, right? It's rising. And, and that and creation follows. So the Spirit of God flows forth from the love of the Father and the Son. Chad was stopped at this point and asked, why does my translation say a mighty wind was over the waters versus spirit? Any comments on the translational differences? You know how at Pentecost, everybody remember the story uh, where the disciples are all gathered in one place after Jesus has risen and ascended to heaven, he's gone now. But then they're all gathered to one place and a rushing wind comes upon them and tongues of fire come down on the apostles. Wind and fire are the two sort of physical signs that, I guess we can't really see wind, but you can see the effects of it very clearly. Trees are bowing over you. People's hair is going crazy. And fire, obviously, is visible. Those are the two visible, physical, tangible effects of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, uh, where spirit is mentioned in the scriptures, some translations will say wind. And sometimes that's poetical. <coughs> yeah. Did you ever hear that? <coughs> spirit as well. Water. <coughs> Over the water. Sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Translation, I think we have different words for water in Hebrew and Greek. And the word that we use for spirit is also the word we use for wind sometimes. So you can see where translators kind of interchange those. That's why you might, in your translation, it might be wind. <clears throat> Mayim is water, I think. Anyway. Um, yeah, good question. Thank you for raising that. 
So this whole creation thing, regarding the orderly structure of the church. In Genesis 1, verse 3 to chapter 2, verses 3, these verses describe God's activity in creation, what God does to order the situation of verse 2, where we read, it's without form, it's got no form, and it's empty. It's formless, it's all disordered, and it's empty. What are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to form it, and we're going to fill it. That's what God does. He likes order. So he's going to put it into a good state of perfect readiness for humans and the fulfillment of his own blessing plan. And his creative work consists in preparing a place and populating it with people for a purpose. Sorry about all the alliteration. That's just kind of how our minds work. There's a lot of that in the original languages. So we kind of try to do it in English too, because it's kind of fun. Or we might say that God forms and fills it, is what I just said. So I got a diagram there for you in your notes. On days one to three, God forms the earth for habitation by separating light and the darkness. He separates waters into sea and sky, the waters below and the waters above. And he separates the fertile earth from the sea. So he separates land and water. That's days one, two, and three. A lot about kind of Clearing, clearing the workspace, right? Cleaning the workbench, getting everything ready, separating things into different sections. Then, once he's got everything ordered up, he starts to fill it. And that's what we have in days four, five, and six. He puts luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, things to give light on the earth. And then he, that's what he does with the heavens and in relation to the earth, right? But, oh, what about the seas? Well, we got to put stuff in there too. So fish, uh, fowl, that is, to fill the, the sky, birds to fill the sky, and fish to fill the sea. And then he makes the land creatures on day six. And of, above all the land creatures, sort of culminating, the prized creation moment is when he makes man in his own image, which you read a little bit ago. And in day seven, rest is best understood as enjoyment. God looks at all he made, and he delights in it. And he sees this well-oiled machine on its way to filling the earth with his own likeness. The question posed was, how does our concept of time and the understanding of time matter in this particular scripture passage? Are we to read it as our 24-hour day, or is it more figurative, than anything else. If we're talking in uh, in natural scientific terms, I'm an old earth guy. So I don't care if it's a million years, a billion years. That doesn't bother me at all. Um, th that's kind of where I am. I, I, a day is a figurative, a period, a time, the time that he took to do this. Call it one day. The time that he took to make this happen through whatever processes, call it another day, you know, that sort of thing. I do think that, you know, evening and morning indicates that, which is what we see, that there is a clear ordering of our experience of time according to a relatively 24-hour period. We do best as people in the day, in the light, you know, our eyes don't work as well at night. We have to have a flashlight or something that helps us. So we're made for the day and not for the night. That's when we sleep. That's, I pray with my kids. 
uh, especially the boys, we've been praying the St. Michael prayer. Sometimes they have trouble trusting God, you know, they're, they're a little worried about night. This is the best time, fellas, I tell them, to entrust your soul to God. Because you're not in control when you're sleeping. You don't know what's happening, you know. And, and so this is a good time to practice trusting Jesus and the angels and the saints that, he, that are praying for you and that are around you and uplifting you to the Father. So, yeah, night is a time where we're vulnerable. Day is the time where we operate best. And, that, and God has built that into the created order. But whether day and night uh, figure in, in the, what's, what, what the scriptural author is revealing with these words is a little looser, I think. It's a little flexible. But where day comes in, in terms of a time span, I, you know, if, are we talking theology, Bible, or science? They're not opposed. They're not contradicting each other. Um, because the points that the Bible's making are, are spiritual. They're, they're trying to get us to see God in a certain way and what God's up to. I want to make a couple of additional reflections that aren't in your notes. This is a great discussion. We can do more of it in after hours, too. Um, so this is kind of summing up what we were talking about a little bit ago. Light and dark, obviously, signify more than lights and no lights, like what happens when you come in a room, right? They refer to spiritual realities, the forces of good and evil, and they refer to the condition of God's creation as in this tension of good and evil, light and dark. Not just how it looks. Well, I can see when the lights are on, and I can't see when the lights are off. But um, yeah, light and dark as, as a conditional states. So that when you get to the book of Revelation at the very end, and you see this new city coming down out of heaven from God, What's one of the things you read? There's no more night anymore. And there aren't any natural lights anymore because Jesus, the Lamb, is there, present, and he shines. He offers the light that he was at the very beginning perpetually. And so we're people that don't, apparently don't need sleep anymore. <laughs> um, it's always light there all the time. That is, it's always good, and there's no evil in it. So, and, and there's a kind of a bridge or a, a collapse between the spiritual condition of good and evil versus the natural condition of lightness and darkness. There's no darkness anymore. The light never goes out because Jesus is always there, because it's always good and fully good. So it's a beautiful, hopeful thing. I don't know. I like sleep. Do you? <laughs> so I'm not sure how it's going to be. Something has to change in me <laughs> before I'm ready for that. But... I'm hopeful and I, I look forward to seeing it. So God's activity on the first day is referring not principally to what happened on the first day of the earth, but actually to the battle which took place, which we talked about a little bit ago in the cosmos, where Lucifer revolted and so on. If you look at um, specifically at days, uh, that's day one, days two and three, um, anybody done construction here? Or carpentry, yeah, a little bit. I did it for a couple of years. Uh, when you build anything that's big, you got to lay footings, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing if you look at that diagram in days two and three. When he separates the waters below and the waters above, and the, he makes land and he separates from from the water itself, he's laying the footings for something that he's building, and then he starts filling it with the details. 
And really, if you look at that diagram still, do I have it labeled? You know what I'm talking about, right? The little the little readout with days one and three, one to three on the left side, four to six. I wish I'd kind of flipped it, and I might do this in future renditions, but where day seven on top is the, the finished part, right? So he lays the footings down here, then he fills them, and then there's a pinnacle of everything just as it ought to be and God's enjoyment of it on the seventh day. And as I'm doing this with my hands, what are you imagining? What's he building the earth, the cosmos to be? It's a structure like a temple where he has granted or gifted his, the people he has made to be his image, his likeness, to go forth, to, be, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, as you read a little bit ago. Fill up the earth with my likeness. Fill up this temple with my likeness. And I will look at it, and I will say to myself, ah, there's a temple that's filled with myself where I can come and dwell because it's a God-friendly sort of place. It looks like me already. You've, you've done a good job, he hopes to say someday. You've filled it with my presence, and here I come to join you and be with you. That's the ultimate aim of God's creative activity is he's building a temple out of the cosmos and he wants to come into it from outside of it and join us and be with us. That's, that's what we're supposed to take away as you read the rest of the scriptures from the story of creation. That's what God's doing with everything. Uh, we talked about verses 26 to 27. I've got to save a little time. I'm going to skip that, um, that other second diagram under letter B. But it's interesting if you have time in your busy days to come back to your notes and reflect on that. Um, just about the image of God, how we're created in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. He is the one who makes the invisible God visible and how our story, your story, my story, the reason you're here tonight is because you're being invited to be remade from wherever you are in your life into the image of God more and more. And it's a, it's a journey we're on together, on the way. I, I love the way you've retitled it. So that's talking about not just the, yeah, the capacity to bear God's image, but the call, God's personal invitation to each of us. Come and be endowed with my very likeness and bring light to the earth as I do. That's the invitation. Looking ahead to chapter 2, verses 5 to 17, let me just summarize. There is the most intimate life-giving act of the Trinity in chapter 2, verse 7. I'll read it for you if you're not there. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Not just scientific, biological life, but true God-given life, a soul that connects with God. Each of us here tonight has the capacity to be in a deep connection with God because of the life he has breathed into our nostrils. We participate in that. Uh, the extra is the second bullet point in our letter C. Just interesting to me, the extra attention to the orderliness and structure in verses 8 to 14. Um, he planted a garden in Eden in the east. And he, there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground he made to spring up every tree, and the 
Um, and then you talk about the, the jewels, the gold, the bedillium, onyx stone, the different stones that are there in this garden. It's again, keep thinking about what God's really doing with the cosmos is he's making a temple. And even here in the early words of Genesis, we have this mention of numerous different kinds of stones that are part of his temple. And um, so stones are a big deal in Catholic church buildings. Why? Because this is creation, really. There's a relationship here about what God is doing. Uh, The priestly role of the man in verse 15. Check it out. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Your English version probably says something like, to work it and keep it. But again, there's a translational issue there, and I don't mean to get too nerdy on you. I'm sorry about this, but if you could read Hebrew, you'd see something more like, to worship and obey. It's a beautiful line. And translators don't know what to do with that because we don't even have a worship system yet here. Like the Levitical code's way down the road and like three books later. Uh, So what does that even mean? But that's what it says. Something like to worship and obey. He's giving man a priestly role of worship and obedience, tilling, keeping the garden, what our priests do in the garden. Um, so I'm just making points as we go here. Here's a summary point that's not in your notes. Um, maybe it's obvious by now and I'll just, I'll say it. God isn't creating a structuralist stage, you know, just a blank canvas on which to act out a series of random events that lead to the knowledge of him. You know, he just creates life. And then eventually we kind of search after God and discover him when he incarnates in Matthew. No, no, no. He's creating a temple which he eventually means to enter in order to share himself in communion with his people, with his image bearers, those who are created in his image. But then tragedy strikes, and this is the corruption in your notes, part two. Chapter three, the story of the fall serves a threefold purpose in scripture. It reports what happened to that which God made good and intended for blessing, It explains the origin of the darkening of the mind, the struggle we have, all of us now, against sin. Even our priests have to go to confession. And it explains death. So we lost three beautiful things when Adam and Eve took the fruit that they weren't supposed to take and ate it and disobeyed God. Um, We lost bodily immortality. Now we die. We lost infused divine perfect knowledge now we struggle to make sense of stuff Uh, we read the bible and it doesn't compute for us sometimes probably some of the stuff i'm saying tonight is what and but that might be my fault because i'm struggling just like you are i'm struggling to make sense of it right that's the second thing and the third thing is uh not necessarily in order but um now we have this thing we call it's a fancy word are you ready concupiscence (laughs) the struggle against the temptation to sin that we never used to have uh, until the Satan serpent came and introduced it to Eve, right? Uh, And we're fighting it. We're just fighting it all the time. And finally, letter C, um, the fall explains, uh, well, the tragedy typifies what continues to happen in human existence. So this is stuff that keeps playing into our daily lived experience. In terms of what actually happened here relative to God's creation, the fall consists in a twofold tragedy. Number one, or letter A, 
It's an assault on the established created order. The created order broke. What was beautiful is now fractured. Like when a mirror goes and the reflection is all wonky now. And secondly, it was a rejection, Adam and Eve's rejection, humanity's rejection of God's path to the good. They were told, here's how to flourish. Here's how it's going to go well for you. And they chose a different way. Like Lucifer did. Um, I just draw your attention to the sequencing in the story. We don't have to go through every word in that really small print diagram there, but just real quick. Um, th this is high literary art. Just look at the bold words, okay? First, God creates. What does he create? The man. Then he creates the woman later. And then he gives them dominion over the animals, including the serpent. Okay, so God, man, woman, serpent. Look what the serpent does. Starting with himself, he goes in exactly the reverse order. He's wily, it says. He entices the woman who gives to the man who fails God. So the force of evil, here's the summary. The force of evil is to undo what God has set as the right way to do things. It seeks to do it exactly the opposite way and to distort it as a result. That, and you see it in the story. It's a beautiful telling if you're paying attention to those details. But there's hope, number three, in your notes. There's hope. And if you got your Bible still, and, and you're still open to Genesis, if you turn to chapter 3, so that tonight's theme is creation and corruption, but we're going to end on a happy note, because that's... <laughs> Because we should. Chapter 3, verse 15. So after, after they blow it, Adam and Eve, uh, mostly Adam, uh, I think women get a bad rap in Genesis 3 sometimes um, by uncareful readers. They think that Eve blew it all for everybody. Actually, it was Adam. If you want to know the details, ask me later. Um, God then addresses the serpent because that's the order he went in. The serpent starts with himself and goes to the woman, then goes to the man. So it's as if the Lord's going to say, hey, I'll play that game, but look how I, look what I do here. So he says to the serpent, because you've done this, this is verse 14, cursed are you above all livestock. And in verse 15, this really intriguing line, chapter 3, verse 15, I'm going to put enmity, tension, static, between you, you serpent, and the woman, but we're not told which woman. We just assume it's the one. She's not named Eve yet, by the way. She comes to have that name later. But we assume it's her, don't we? Though it doesn't say that. Between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, so you're going to be at war with someone who is the woman. And your, the line that comes from you is going to be at war with her offspring. And then it becomes singular. He, that is the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Still singular. His, his. What do you think is going on there? What is God talking about? I think he is. I think you're right on top of it. And Mary has to be at least indicated here by the word woman, right? If it's Satan's offspring, 
and the offspring of the woman who are going to duke it out in the ring, right? They're going to go to the octagon and do it. And, and, and that, that woman's offspring is Jesus. Then the woman whose offspring Jesus is has to indicate Mary, at least figuratively in some way, even if he is also talking about Eve and saying her later greater offspring, Jesus, and thus Mary, the one who gives birth to Jesus. So I think it's all kind of wrapped up in this beautiful arcing text that, that looks ahead um, distantly. And on it goes. So I, that's a very hopeful kind of thing to read, it seems to me. Um, it also sets us on a search and find journey, doesn't it? Who is this offspring? We don't know yet. Is it Noah right around the corner? The one whose name means rest? Is he going to achieve for us the seventh day rest that we lost when sin came to the world? Or is it someone else later and greater than Noah? And each person, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, right? Everybody's a hopeful. Is this the one? Is this the one of the offspring of the woman? And it also sends us on a search and find mission for the woman herself. Who is this woman who is going to give birth to this offspring? So we're on a, we call a messianic, we're looking for the Messiah, a messianic journey. And we're also on a Marianic quest. We know it's Mary because we know the end of the story, but we're looking for Mary. And we're looking for her in all the different women in the Old Testament, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Judiths, etc. Uh, I mentioned Noah already. We can skip past that. He's a very hopeful figure. Read chapter 6 to 10 for a really, really good story. When we come to chapter 11, uh, chapter 10 actually summarizes after the flood. We've most, most of us have heard about the flood story, right? Chapter 10, after the flood, all Noah's sons go out and they have all these children and they spread, they start spreading throughout the world. And you think to yourself as a reader, oh, great, now we're on the right track. Because God said to Adam and Eve in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So go out, right? But then what do they do? They take their eye off the ball and they all coagulate at this place, this hill country in Shinar. And they try and do what? They try and build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves and to reach the heavenly realm on their own volition, on their own talent. So we're going to forget God. We're not going to listen to God's instruction to go out and fill the earth with his likeness. No, we're going to gather instead. We're going to go to the center and we're going to build this thing and we're going to get to heaven on our own power. We're going to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. So God, what does he do? That's another place where he says, let us go down there and see this thing that they are building. It's plural again. So, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all go down. It's a road trip. Well, air trip. I don't know. And what do they do? They scatter. They divide the languages. So they get things going back in the right track. A lot of people read Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story, as God sort of bringing a curse or discipline or punishment to these people. I think he's blessing them. <laughs> he's helping them do what they were supposed to be doing all along. Scattering them is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. They're supposed to be going out. So he mixes up their languages because God likes diversity. And, and he sends them out. And so they go out. 
So they're back on the right track, but you know, you know the story. It doesn't go very well, and he has to keep getting involved. God does. So that's where we are. We're, we, we have a revolt in Genesis 11. Then he comes and he chooses, after he's scattered everybody, he chooses whom? Abram. Yeah, whose name is changed to Abraham later. You're my guy, he says. And what does he say in chapter 12, verse 3? If you're there, I've just about got it memorized. Yeah, you're my guy, and through you, this is my real aim. I want to bless all the families of the earth. Some will choose against me, and they won't get it. My love is for them. My intention is for them. I want to bless everybody. That's my desire. This is God's heart. God's got a big heart. The Old Testament God has a big heart. He wants to bless everybody. And he's going to make it happen one way or the other, hook or crook. Abraham's his first major you know, out of all the scattered people, he chooses the, the small, and he wants to bless everybody through him. And that's where we leave our story. Uh, let me just give you a summary. God wants to share his Trinitarian life with us. And he wants to do it in two ways. In this text, where we've listened to him and, and drawn some interesting points, but he also wants to give him his very, give us his very self. So he wants to give us, give himself to us in his words, and in his flesh. That's why we have the Bible, and that's why we have the sacraments as Catholics, which we're going to unpack in the weeks to come. Above all, we have the Eucharist, which is what we call communion. Maybe if you're not from a Catholic tradition, and that's why the Mass is ordered according to two parts. Every Mass has two parts. The Liturgy of the Word, where we read this, and the Liturgy of the Sacrament, where we receive Jesus that way. And finally, notice that the Liturgy of the Word begins in the section of the Bible where the great story actually begins. So every time you go, uh, at least to a Sunday Mass, almost every time, not entirely every time, but just about every time, your first reading is going to be somewhere in the Old Testament pages. Then there will be a responsorial psalm where you'll get to talk, you'll get to respond. Then we'll hear a New Testament reading, and then we'll hear from the Gospel. And they're all in coordination with one another. God wants to make sense of the sacrament we receive, his body and blood, on the basis of what he tells us throughout this great story. So it's really important at the front end of your journey tonight, or these weeks, to get into the Word, this Word, and to keep reading and reading and reading. Like the Energizer Bunny, this is going to date me, but like way back in, I don't know, the 90s, or maybe it was even 80s when I was a little boy, the bang, 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 the Energizer Bunny, remember this? Just keep going and going and going. Read, keep reading and reading and reading and reading. And uh, if we can help make sense of things as best we're able, we will. But that's where I'll leave you tonight. We're at 8.06. I think I was supposed to have till 8.15, and I like to end early. Also because there are some announcements, I think, right? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska.
on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.